Once again, I have the pleasure of speaking with Bobby King at R&R King Logging. And Bobby, the reason I, I brought you in is because my wife and I were in Costco a couple weeks ago and, and we were talking to Don. Um, Don works for you and, and he sort of transitioned into a new thing. And he was talking about the use of drones and how you guys are now using drones as part of logging. So it started. I started thinking about, gee, where has the logging industry come since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing pictures and old videos of two guys with the saw with, you know, cutting yep. these huge trees down um, and hand taking cut. them down one by one, hand yep. cutting. Mm-hmm. And I guess that was probably, well, I mean, access to, I guess we're probably first used in that. Yeah. So so give me a little history of, of logging, specific, not specifically in the Northwest, but I mean, the Northwest is where you're most familiar with. Well, so. first of all, the Pacific Northwest uh, grows trees better than any place in the world. And uh, because of that, we grow brush and uh, competitive things, uh, vegetation that competes with new trees that, mm-hmm. that you plant. So everything grow. grows well. Here. So, yeah, everything grows well. So the Pacific Northwest grows trees just like nobody's business. And, and so I've been in, I've been in the business uh Really, with, I've gone to the woods with my dad since I could walk. And uh, so that was 75 years ago. And um, uh, so as time changed, as technology changed, logging changed. And you go back to the day when you talk about how did we do it at the beginning? We did it with the old axe. We'd cut trees down with an old axe, and there'd be a guy on each side. They'd rig up a, a springboard called a springboard because the trees were so big you couldn't get you couldn't reach where you needed to cut them on the ground because they they spread out. Mm-hmm. So you need to go up a little way. So they put these springboards in, stand on these springboards, and swing those axes from both sides. Take turns, whap whap, and uh, they'd fall these big monsters, and then they'd get them on the ground, and then they would try to act, cut them in two by bucking or by with an axe to make links out of them. Then they'd hook an old ox or horses on them. Drag them to where they needed to go. They lay cross beams sideways in the in the skid trails, so the logs could slide across. Sort the, of roll down. Yeah, the, so it kind of rolled down the the, the wooden planks. And, and so, they trimmed all the limbs too, right? Is that something they did on spot there? Well, see, that, most of the time the limbs didn't start until you were three quarters of the way up the tree. Oh, that's true because yeah, because you had all the cover there. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, and they were old growth. You know, that's they didn't mess with this. 20-inch stuff or 25-inch stuff. They met, All they cut were the big, nice trees where they could get a lot of lumber out of. Mm-hmm. So we've progressed from the horses and the, the, the oxen to get the logs down to where you could put them on a truck. And then that time to get them on a truck, they would build a hole when you back the truck in and then you'd take um, something, an uh, oxen on the other side of that hole. The truck could be back. This is when we had vehicles. Mm-hmm. Be- before that, we'd put them, we'd slew them down a, a side canyon and let them bunch up in the river. And then when high water came in the wintertime, they'd float them down to the mills oh, in the river. Yeah. That was before, you know, we had trucks right. and build roads. Right. So uh, as we progressed and we went from chopping these trees down with axes, we went to the uh, cross saws and the hand buck and the hand saws, a guy would be on each side of the tree on the same springboards, and they'd be sawn. And of course, to fall a tree, you got to cut a face out to directionally fall that tree in the right direction. Uh, which brings me to a story in Alaska, and I'll tell you about that a little bit later. Right. But anyway, so as things progressed uh, and developed a, uh, instead of the hand saws and the cross buck saws, we developed power saws, chainsaws. And man, what a difference that made. So guys could run those power saws and cut, fall the trees. And along with that, 
and they, they developed the dozer, the uh, Caterpillar was the first, developed a dozer with a, a winch on the back that could winch those logs up to the back of the dozer and then drag them to the where you need to go. Instead of the horses and oxen, you use a, a, a machine. Part of that, and this is kind of like the old boys are pretty darn smart in those days. What was happening when you drag those logs, they would dig into the ground behind the dozer. So they developed an arch. And sometimes the arch were on tracks, sometimes they were just rubber-tired. Uh, um, what they were was an axle with a piece of metal in the middle and going up to about 10 feet high, and they had a pulley on it. And the arch and the line from your dozer would go up through that arch and down onto the ground. They'd suck those logs up to the top of that arch. That'd get that log off the ground. So when you're pulling it, you don't create great big ruts. You actually just drug the back in. Oh, cool. And so you didn't have that problem of digging in, which also, uh, you know, those were the days. In fact, in, it, logging today consists of two, two mainly different kinds of logging. Ground skid, where you still use a skidder or a dozer unit, and most of the dozer units now have a little arch on the back so you can suck the log up and get it off the ground. Not only does it protect the ground, but it ups production because it's a lot faster to get that log on, up off the ground. But, it, it, but because of that, um, uh, the two types of logging that we do it now and starting back in the early 60s uh, is cable logging, which is uh, more of a long span logging. You can go across the canyon and steep hillsides where you aren't able to get a dozer down or or, or a, a, today's log sh- shovels are, are mobile enough where they crawl and they'll tail logs over three or four times to the road to where you can load them out. But so today... Uh, and back then, in the 60s, um, we had two kinds of logging still then, but we started developing more cable logging, and they would use wooden spar trees. Now, if you were to go back and if you could find some movies and videos on how they erected some of a, a wooden tower, with tree would not always be in the right place. <laughs> but when it was, they'd go up and they'd have a guy with spurs and rope and go up and they'd climb up that tree 100 feet up to 120 feet, 150 feet in the air, cut the top out of that tree. And then some of the videos you see, those, that tree, when they cut that top out, the guy just stands up there and he sways back and right. forth. Oh, yeah, I just, yeah. yeah. Some of the people, some of the times, the way that they would cop those trees, they'd stick some dynamite around the edge. What? They'd go back down on the ground with a thirty thirty or some kind of a rifle, and they'd shoot that dynamite and blow the top out. Now that— True story. That That's the way cool. they used—some of the guys used to yeah. top the trees. Back when they were using axes and saws, did they have, like, a dedicated person that would do sharpening? Like, were there, or would each man sharpen his own axe? No, each man would sharpen his own axe. So they, they had to stop. They would have to stop and sharpen. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. But they, their axes stayed pretty sharp. They, they wouldn't— uh, what what they would do, there were a lot of moss, or, and of course they were up high enough, there wasn't a lot of dirt to dome mm-hmm. them, but they would scrape all that moss and stuff off so they had a clear shot at the wood. And their axes stayed pretty sharp. And they, of course, at night, they'd take a big old file and they'd file their axes down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they kept, kept, but in today's times, we have specialties in the sawmills, especially when they have saws in the sawmill, they have saw filers, their specialty. Those guys are hard to come by. They're old school, but they had certain people that knew how to file those saws in the in the mills. Because the mills, when you run a log through the mill, you got these band saws. Of course, today it's different than it used to be, but they have these band saws that just runs constantly, and they just saw a lumber off that log. But anyway, back to the logging um, and interject any time. I go back uh, in, in uh, 1958. 
well, go back to let me go back to you have cable logging and ground kid logging. In the cable logging days to begin with, like I said, they had wooden spar trees, and those spar trees were not always in the right place. So they would find the right tree, right size, right height, and then they would move that tree, to pull that tree to a location, build a mat out of other trees, and they would raise that tower by pulling on it, pulling on it, pulling on it, kind of like they do when they do the side of a building. They'll build mm-hmm. one side and then right, raise it yeah. up. Mm-hmm. And they'll raise that spar tree. Of course, that spar tree had to have all these guy lines hanging on it to hold that tree in the air. And there'd be these high climbers that go up there with belt and spurs, climb up there, and then he'd have little blocks and he'd have a line going down to, uh, to the ground and the guys would hook all the rigging on and they'd pull that rigging up to the guy and he'd take it around the tree, but, uh, tie it off, and then that was one guy line. And he'd do that seven, eight times around that tree. they have guy lines to hold it in the air. Because just think how unstable that thing would be. I mean, this was amazing what they did. And that thing, then they'd hang big blocks. And I mean 24, 30-inch blocks. They called them bull blocks. And they'd hang those blocks in those trees. And then they'd have a, a, a yarder, what we call a donkey, which had the drum set. And these drum sets normally were two drum sets. One was a great big skyline which is the one that did all the power, pulled the logs in. Mm-hmm. And the other one was called a haulback, which is um, it could be down to an inch. Today we don't use anything that size because of our deflection. But they would have inch and a half skyline, main line, and up to an inch haulback. And the reason they call it the haulback is because in those days, and that was a steam engine, a steam donkey in the early, they called it the yarders donkeys. Mm-hmm. They would have steam engines run those drums. And uh, so they'd run a drum up to that big pulley in the top of the tree out to the woods, and they'd have another pulley out there. And then they'd have the other drum going through another block uh, above the skyline block, the main line block, and it'd go out to another pulley, and they'd connect them on the back end. The, the haulback would go through one pulley to another pulley and then hook up to the back of the sky, uh, to the main line. And that would work like, you know, I always picture a... a, a a clothesline in New York where you see them hanging their clothes and out between the buildings and they'd pull their line in, put the clothes on it, then they'd do the right. other line and pull it back out. So it's like a zip line for trees, sort of. Yeah, in, in somehow they had to pull way. that line back yeah. in. Yeah. So anyway, that's how, how this, uh, they called high lead logging. And this high lead logging was uh, on this wooden tree would let you go down the steep hillsides uh, to where you couldn't get a dozer or some other way to yard it. So they'd run these cables down there, and then they'd hook onto them and pull them uh, as they pull it back with a haulback, hook the logs on. Then they'd pull it in and let the haulback slide, stayed hooked just like a clothesline. Mm-hmm. And so that allowed them to do the hillsides, the steep hillsides, where you couldn't necessarily get a dozer with tracks. Mm-hmm. No machine would be able to be stabilized on a steep hill ground. So they went from the wooden trees uh, and the steam donkey uh, from the steam donkey, they went to the diesel-operated engines, and they had things called frictions where you'd set your drum. And then that when you set your friction in that drum, that allowed it to take, and so you could pull your log in. Then they'd kick you that friction out. I'm probably getting it too detailed. Pull the haul back dr- friction in, and we'd suck it back in after it goes back like a clothesline. So after the wooden trees and, the, uh, and then the diesel engines came into being, in uh, 1958, 59, when I really first started working with, I, by the way, I'm a third generation logger. Mm-hmm. So we, 
my grandfather used to log with horses. So that, wow, that we do know about that. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, in 1958, uh, my first job in the woods was a whistle pump. Uh, and there's a lot of terminology. I was say, so what, is, what exactly is that? Okay, a whistle punk. Now, on these steep hillsides, uh, you had uh, men down in the brush over the edge setting chokers, or which what goes around the log. Mm-hmm. It's a cable. It goes around the log and has a metal bell, and the bell is hooked to with a nubbin, and it's like a noose on a hanging man, mm-hmm. on right. a, a lasso. And you'd hook that log up uh, onto a choker, and then— that choker was hooked to what we call butt rigging, which was just a, a bunch of swivels, big heavy metal swivel, swivels, weighed 500 pounds. Mm. And so that guy over the edge had no way to tell that guy running the machine way up there, up. 1,000 to 1,500 feet up on the flat, had no way of knowing when to when the choker was set and when to go ahead on it. So we had to have a guy blowing a, a little, a little hand, wooden hand squeezing. You squeezed and it had two metal points. And when those metal points clicked, it, re, it blew a whistle up on the, on the yard. We call it the yard up on the oh. machine where the operator ran the the drums. And then he knew to turn the engine on, or turn, he knew to pull it up. He knew when to look, pull it, mm-hmm. let it down, raise it up. So a whistle punk was a guy that would have this. Giant loop of uh, electric cable, electric wire, like an extension cord, mm-hmm. a little heavier. He would have this looped around his neck, and he would, and that was connected to the whistle at the at the machine on top, the yarder. Yeah. And he would unloop that as he walked down into the hillside, so he could be close to the men down there that were actually doing the physical work of setting the chokers on the logs. Right, so he could see everything plainly. So he could see everything, yeah. but the main thing that he had to do was listen, <clears throat> because those guys that called a rigging slinger. He's the guy that, that did the hollering and p- pointed out what logs for each choker set it again. He would holler signals, and there's a code, and there's signals that, that ever, they use today. And he'd holler out, whoop, 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 which means go ahead, pick it up, and go ahead, go ahead on your, on your line, or whoop, whoop. That's how he'd holler, only really loud. I, could, I used to do it really loud. <laughs> whoop, whoop, you know, type thing. And then they'd pull it back a little bit because the chokers always had to line up where the logs were, the, 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 the butt rigging. So when he would holler, this this whistle punk uh, uh, would have to signal, get that signal, and then squeeze that little wooden bug, and um, and tell that yard engineer when to go ahead on it. So, and it was so critical because if he pulled on it ahead before the guys were out in the clear, I mean, we'd you'd pull a log over the top of the guy. Yeah. So it was critical. Yeah. And uh, so in, in 1958, I was uh, between my eighth grade and freshman year in high school. <clears throat> I was in the woods. We had bought the first metal tower. And that's replacing the wooden the trees. Replacing right? the wooden tower so, and a cable machine where you could reach down on the steep hillside. <clears throat> we were so proud of that metal tower. It's a square, 100 feet tall. It's called a burger. It was on a sled, so we pulled that sled around. And when we'd move it, we'd lay it down horizontally. So it had a stand on each end, and lay it down, it'd lay into a stand, and we'd grab the dozer, we call them cats, and suck it to the next place to set it back up again, mm-hmm. held up by guy lines. Right. But there was no way uh, for them to know when to go ahead on those whistles, so there was this whistle plunk, me, down there, and I was so bored because I was so rambunctious, and I always tried to talk the choker setters into trading with me when I wasn't old enough to set chokers, but 
I mean, that's what I want to do is that choke or something physical. But I would I would be down that edge, and I'd unstring that cable down the hillside as far as I could go. Sometimes I took two sections, 400 feet of cable and string it down the hill to where I could be close. And I'd be so bored, I'd climb up a tree where I could really hear well and see everything going on. So I would be the whistle punk, and it'd blow the whistles. Well, from, the, from nowadays, that cord... Uh, whistle system with the cord and the extension cord running down the hill. We replace that with cordless, wireless talkie tutors, they're called. And a talkie tutor is just a, it's a red bug. And it's, it's uh, <clears throat> when you raise it up, then the, uh, it's activated to where the guy, the rigging singer that used to do the hollering, now he uses that bug himself and squeezes it for signals on the yard. Hmm. So those, those things have not changed. So you're still doing the same. It's just a little... Uh, newer electronics. Yeah, we've gotten yeah. rid of the whistle punk. Yeah, new electronics, um, and so, and we have a, now we have the metal tower that's mobile. We can pull it down the road, set and stand it back up in the air, and guy line it off, and keep logging. So it is up to production. I'll tell you what. Let's let's take a quick little break here. We'll, okay. we'll pay some commercial. We'll pay okay. Some bills here, sure. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about how things are sure. in the present. Sure. Got a lot right? of progression. All right. Yep. More with Bobby King of R&R King Logging after the news at the top of the hour. On our December edition of Our Town, I'm talking with Bobby King, and we're talking the history of logging. I. I Really got interested in, in hearing this when I heard about them using drones to uh, to help them log the forest. So wh- where are we at now? You talked about like in the late fifties, early sixties, and how things were. Now let, let's move ahead a little bit and tell me some significant changes that okay. happened over the next. Yeah, and few I, I years. and there there are different stages. Uh, you know, the from the wooden tree to the metal tower, from the whistle punk to the wireless right. uh, talkie tutor system, and then and also the next move was when we used to use tongs to hook uh, to grab the log and set, turn and set them on a log truck. Mm-hmm. Tongs are like ice tongs when they grab a big brick of ice, you right. know, with the tongs. Those kind yeah. of activated themselves. Like, are they like three hooks or something like well, that? Well, they were they were two with two points hooks? on each end. Okay. And they'd pick it up and they'd come up against the heel rack, swing it over Slide and put it, it on a log truck. Okay. So we went from tongs to what we call grapples. And grapples were open and closed by cable. And uh, so we had log loaders that were on tracks that used a boom. And then they had these grapples. And they'd grapple, uh, they'd like a hand, mm-hmm. grab that log bring one end up to the boom and then the the rest of it would come up and then you'd have a horizontal log you took it around and put it on a log truck so we those were cable machine log loaders so we went from cable machine uh for log loaders to hydraulic log loaders still use the same grapple system Mm -hmm. except it wasn't run by cable it was run with hydraulics and so you had a hydraulic log loader that walked turned everything was so smooth and hydraulically driven that everything was exact you didn't have to throw your grapples you, they weren't swinging all the time you were exact so we went to hydraulic log loaders how much how much change in a daily yield did the did some of these changes make i mean did it did it allow you to harvest that much more per day or was it just a matter of uh, an ease of use thing double production hmm. with the metal hmm. tower See, when you would take a wooden tree and rig a wooden tree, you'd be a week. Yeah, you'd be there all day. Could, could be, well, you'd be there a week, there a week yeah. rigging that tower, yeah. that tree. Now you move your metal 
middle tower down the road, set it up, and you'd take a day. Mm-hmm. So uh, that improved production. And then with the, the grapples are more exact, there wasn't a lot of wasted time loading log trucks or taking logs out. Of, we call it to shoot. Logs come up on the cable. They lay them down in front of the tower. The, the, the hydraulic log loader pick up those logs and get them out of the way so the next turn had come in. So then we went from tongs and to, to grapples and then uh, to the hydraulic log loaders. Then the, the the old system was on the cable logging, we would high lead, which means we had two drum machines, one to pull the logs in and the other one to pull the line back out right. to hook more chokers on, to hook more logs on. So we went from two drum machines to three drum machines on the yarders. And what that allowed you to do was to um, run a skyline, a stationary skyline, and then you could run a carriage on that skyline, and then you'd be able to uh, have a stationary skyline. You'd have a main line that would hook onto the front of the carriage, pull it in, and you'd have a haul back and pull it back out. So you had three lines. You had a stationary one that a, a carriage could run back and forth on. It didn't move. And then until you changed roads, then you right. had to move everything, which brings us to another point later. Now, but, now, let me ask you, on the, on the when you were using the drums, uh, would you, were you able to take more than one tree at a time on that line, or was it only one tree at a time when you were bringing that line in? Uh or could you hook multiple trees? Well, first of all, the trees were bucked into logs. Okay. Back then, we were logging fairly good-sized log trees. And so a full tree, uh, 50, 60-inch in diameter, was way too much for anything. Okay, so but we'd buck to, those out in the brush. Okay. And we'd hook two on, two to three, uh, what's what we call deflection. We had to be able to get them up off the ground. Mm-hmm. If you get them up off the ground— then that inter- it, that increases production. So the three drum machine letting you have a skyline, which allows your lines. Uh, you drop your lower your skyline and hook the logs on. Then you up your skyline up in the air, and then you pull it in with the main line. And when that's done, you didn't have to have a third drum with a haul back on it if you were just on the front face. But to go up the back face on the other side of the canyon, you had to pull your sky car or drift carriage or whatever you're using back, which brings me to another point because we went from high lead, two drum machines, to three drum machines and using different kinds of cars or, or drift carriages. Carriages. We first used a carriage that uh, allowed you to uh, drop your line down, your skyline down, hook a, hook a log on it and put your skyline back up, lock it off, and then bring it in with the main line. So we went from that to sky cars. Now, sky cars are a rig box that rides back and forth on the skyline. And inside that box, there's a motor, it's a motorized sky car. And in that, in that side, that is a little diesel motor that runs a drum, hydraulically driven. And that has a drum in it. That drum would have three, 400 feet of line on it. You just keep stationary. Only thing you had to do was size that up, how how far back you wanted to go with your line, and then you'd activate the drum and the line and come out of that sky car. Pick the logs up to that sky car, clear off the ground, wow. bring it in. That allowed us to log across the creek, other side of the hillside, and protect the riparian in the bottom of that creek. Between the two side hills, there's always a, a, a bottom in uh, that has a not always a, a riparian, only if there's fish uh, in that creek, is there a riparian mm-hmm. a, a zone that, where you have to protect it? Well, using a sky car and this method that we use allowed us to protect the soil and even more than we used to. Because it used to be when we had high lead machines, we wouldn't log 
from both from one side. We'd go around to the other side and log uphill on both sides, which costs a lot more, a lot more time, more road building. Right. So being the skyline and going across the hillside and protecting the buffers was huge, and it, and uh, production uh, doubled it again. So the skyline, and we're 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 kind of famous for long span skyline logging. I don't want to say famous. We're known for long span skyline logging. We've been out uh, as far as six thousand feet across canyons. Wow, that's a long way. Well, it is, and uh, it allows us to be able to get to some areas that you wouldn't ordinarily get to unless you hired a helicopter. A helicopter doesn't do near the job that we do. Because we clean the ground, helicopter is so expensive, they just kind of cherry pick it and pick the nice logs and leave everything else. Well, well, we're skyline logging. We clean that ground to where it comes back to where it's replantable when we're through logging. Sometimes, because right, if you only if you only pick certain ones and it's hard to replant in that area yeah. because you got the oh yeah cover definitely and yeah yeah and the other part of that is when the helicopter log, they pick it straight up off the ground and it leaves a lot of brush and stuff on the ground and it lets you. Broadcast burn. Now, I, I got to get this in <clears throat> because logging, and it's like I said, no, we grow trees better than any place in the world, the Pacific Northwest, but because of that, the type of soil, the type of topography we have, the type of rainfall, uh, we grow trees better. But that, like I said, we grow brush better than any place in the world, too. And our main species that we harvest is called Douglas fir. Douglas fir is the best, strongest, uh, most usable. Um, most um, wanted type of wood that you can get. So we like to come back and replant Doug fir. Douglas fir is not shade tolerant. To get shade tolerant trees, you'd have to plant spruce or hemlock, which is what they have in Alaska because they don't get a lot of sun Mm -hmm. up there. Uh, So on the north slopes, you get more hemlock or spruce, but on the south slopes, you get a lot of sun and some north slopes. You want to get Doug fir growing. In order to get Douglas fir growing, you have to prepare your ground and get rid of that brush. Therefore, we like to broadcast burn all the brush off that ground and plant a tree. That gives your tree a head start. Now, there are times because of smoke management, you're not allowed to burn because that smoke might go into a city. Right, yeah. We, we might hear about that every now and then. Yeah, we don't want, we don't, you know, Eugene's kind of different anyway, but Eugene is hell-bent to stop logging in the first place, and the other one is they'll use any method. But if smoke goes into Eugene, you're, the smoke management the state does not allow you to burn. You have to have right. the right winds so and the and right conditions. So it, it, it can happen that you have three years to replant after you harvest a unit, which i got to talk about clear-cut. Anyway, you got to be three years to harvest uh, to plant that unit. It may be in those three years' time that you're not able to burn that broadcast burn that unit you could burn your piles but to broadcast you go down the bottom and you let that fire grow up the hillside and you burn that slick off and then you plant new trees and they grow like gangbusters so if that doesn't happen you don't get a chance to burn then you have to go ahead and plant your trees then you have to come back and spray the brush because if you plant trees in the middle of a brush pile the brush is going to take over Mm -hmm. the brush is not going to let that dug fur grow so we have to prepare a ground and that's why we have more trees today than when Columbus landed. For every tree we harvest, we plant five more trees. We know how to manage our forest. And if people were to realize that for them to get the toilet paper they need, 
They need to come out and watch us log and watch these guys risk their lives every day. They're up on these steep hillsides, rain or snow, whatever the weather, cables over their heads, logs around and they roll. And they're on steep hillsides. The landing's up above where they've got logs and load trucks. You're danger. Your life's in danger the whole time. Mm-hmm. But the other part of that is we have more trees today than when Columbus landed because we know how to manage our forest by clear cutting. We have to clear cut in order to plant new trees. In order to plant new trees, you have to have that open ground. We could thin and salvage log and thin and thin, which is not always uh, applicable to some areas because of the ground type of trees. Therefore, and economic-wise, I know you don't want to hear that economics matter in logging, but it does. It just makes more sense if you want to buy a lumber at the lumber yard that that's going to be an economic log that goes to the mill to cut into lumber as you can get, makes it cheaper on the other end. Mm-hmm. So as we log a 60-acre unit, we clear-cut that unit, and that makes it, production-wise, it's, it's almost 10 times the production as if you were to thin that unit. Well, maybe twice, maybe twice, twice as much, but it depends on the unit. But clear cutting is not a dirty word. Clear cutting is a necessity in logging today. And if people would stop and realize that it's a crop and that you harvest it, you replant it. The difference is you have a 45 year rotation versus a year or two year rotation like in corn. Right. So it's a different type of rotation. It's a different type of agriculture, but it's still growing trees is our profession and harvesting these trees is what we do. And we harvest with the idea that we operate on a sustained yield basis. We don't log more than we can grow. And that's been proven for the last 50 years. Well, the the fact that you've got so many trees out there absolutely <laughs> kind of tells you absolutely. Well, let, let's let's we we're okay. kind of short on time. Let's run yeah. fast forward a little bit. Let's let's get into some modern technology. Okay, here. so so the last the last upper uh, modern technology is that when we would log a unit in a clear cut unit, we have these cables strung across the canyon. We have to take uh, when we move to a new unit, we have to string these cables across the canyon. We take small cables and put them in coils. We carry them on our shoulder, and we go around to the back end, and we unloose, unloose untie the, 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 the uh, loops to where you hang on to it, and you go by hand down the hill. Mm-hmm. If you can get to the back end, you still have to carry those 150-pound 100, coils of line on your shoulder to get to that back end. On the front, you do the same thing, and you connect them. Then you hook, connect a small wire called haywire to a haulback, haulback goes around the, through the blocks on the back end up and hooks up to the haulback. The haywire hooks up the haulback, run it back around, then it hooks up to the skyline. So it's a matter of these cables moving. So if you're doing 6,000 feet, you've got 12,000 feet of wire. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. So that could take that can take uh, uh, up to two days to make those kind of, we call it layouts, mm-hmm. to where you string your cable. And then every time you log a road out, or a section where your skyline's across a canyon, you log 150 feet on each side of that using the sky car. You got to move that main cable to the next to the the next area over some more fresh logs. Mm-hmm. In order to move that, you have to restring your haywire. You take again. it all down. Well, yeah. Sometimes you only take half of it down. You move it out of the block on the one back end and hook it to the front end. It jumps it over. Okay. So it's not as strenuous as your first layout. Right. So. Uh, that's all manual. 
you know, we string those cables by hand and it just takes days and sometimes 6,000 feet, it takes up to through three days mm. to string all those cables. And then if the cable breaks, you're up a creek because you got to restring it. So right. it's, it, it, it's all very tedious and expensive. So we get a, uh, uh, I get a phone call from a guy who's fishing on Silicoose Lake and ran into one of our employees. And he says, I would tell him about this drone that we've developed. I go, yeah. He says, well, he thinks you need to have one. I said, and I said, well, we might, we sh- maybe we do. He said, well, I'd like to come down and demonstrate it. So he brought this drone. Imagine it's a pretty big one. Well, it's about four foot in diameter. Yeah, it's pretty big. See, <laughs> it's regulated by the um, FAA. government, yeah, FAA, whatever. And it's, so we're only allowed to have certain horsepower, certain size, certain weight. Otherwise, we've got to go through a year to two years of applications, and they have to have a license. Well, the, our guy has to be licensed. And you ran into Don. His name is Don Gallatin, and he used to be a yarder engineer and logged all of his life. And he's the best man in the world for this job because he knows exactly what has to be done in the logging end of it, not just on the technical end of the drone, but on the logging end of it, which is you got to have both mm-hmm. savvy both. So he went to school, and they taught him how to uh, do that. He had to get a license. And so we use this drone, <clears throat> and we hook nylon rope small um, uh, quarter-inch nylon rope, that drone flies it out to the back end up to 4,000 feet. We haven't been 6,000 feet with it yet, but it'll go out to 4,000 feet, drop a line, and we'll have a pulley back there. It'll come back, and it'll get another leg and drop, fly it out 4,000 feet, and then they leave a, what they call a tail to where you got enough in hanging down that they connect the two together and then go through a couple of blocks. Blocks or pulleys right. that are on the back end. So then they go. Uh, so we've got two legs of nylon rope. So then one end of the nylon rope is hooked to the haywire, which is a uh, three eighths inch cable that weighs up to a hundred pounds in a coil. If you, a lot bigger than real and haywire. They, yeah, and, and that haywire's got loops on each end yeah, with a hook, and you mm. unhook them and hook them together. That's that's how the haywire works. Well, with a drone, you you have these nylon legs out there to the back end and. And it takes seventeen, uh, fifteen to seventeen minutes to string these lines, which take us two days before wow. with eight men. Yeah. So here's one guy, and he lays these late roads out ahead, to where we, when we finish one road, we jump right over because what happens? It comes back, that nylon rope comes back up there. We take off the uh, the one end that we tied off. We hook that to the haywire, and then we have a drum on a flatbed truck. And it'll suck that haywire, in, the nylon rope in, and pull that haywire, that uh, haywire, the cable out. And then we start gluing our regular system, hooking onto the haulback, run it around, then hook onto the skyline, run it out, and then everything is set. So that you know, across four thousand feet down and up, two thousand feet down, two thousand feet up, go straight across. It took a lot of manpower and a lot of days to do that. Now we have a drone. Which was not cheap, but it pays off. In I'm no sure, time. yeah. And, and, the, the drones is about fifty thousand dollars. Wow. A yarder today's modern yarder is about a million dollars. So uh, it's very expensive business. Yeah. Uh, we have to be able to get production to make it profitable, and that's not a dirty word either. We're not in the business for so, experience for right. crying out loud. 
what what do you see just quickly what do you see coming up in in the future i mean what what's the next generation of loggers going to going to experience as far as technology and and the ability to you know cut more efficiently well let me drop back one minute right. you ask about um uh, getting the tr- lo- limbs off the logs and mm-hmm. stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay, so w- we always use at least two. T- we get so much production in the small wood that we will get eighty to hundred to two hundred pieces of of logs a day. We all have limbs on them because in the smaller wood we log them tree lengths. Mm-hmm. So we gotta take a tape measure, go out, measure it, bucket, go out and from that buck to another one and bucket again with a handsaw, with a chainsaw. Uh, so that was very time-consuming, and the bad part is we get so much production, that was like a bottleneck. We had to wait. We had to tail them over out of the way and then had to take time to go get them and bring them back. So what we what has, they developed was a processor, and the processor is like a hand, uh, like a set of grapples, only on that processor has got a set of wheels, and those wheels dig into that tree, and, and it— Runs that tree through the hand, the hand, and on each on that hand has two knives that come down on each side, and as it runs it through that hand, strips, strips the limbs off. Oh. Computer says stop. Computer stops. A saw comes down and bucks it off. They run the rest of the log through there, buck it off, and then they run the last top part for a pulpwood. Hmm. So you utilize the whole tree, wow. and you take all the limbs off by using a processor. Eliminates a couple of men and. And ups production tremendously because you don't have to wait those those processors. So anyway, the processors is a big deal on the landing along with the hydraulic log loaders and the, and uh, but the other part that's happening today on these steep hillsides, um, they have a machine that's uh, uh, anchored by another machine, and that machine is a feller buncher. And a feller buncher will go down and they'll grab a tree at, at um, four feet up and then it has a saw at the bottom of it and it tucks that saw off. Then he's got it in his hand, so to speak. That that grapple thing that holds onto it right. has it, bucks it off, and he brings it over and he sets it down. Well, that's a feller buncher and you can use that about anywhere on flat ground and you build little decks with it, which is, makes it better to yard because you don't have to go here, 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 here. They're all in a bunch. That's why they call it a buncher, feller buncher. Well, now they're using feller bunchers on steep ground by ta- anchoring that feller buncher on steep hill with a machine at the top. And they'll lower that machine, lower it, lower it. He reaches over next to a, a stand of timber, cuts them off, piles them on the side. Then he goes back up and comes down and does another strip. So you've got these big decks of logs. So when you cable log, you're over decks of logs, which ups your production by 50%. Wow. I mean, it really makes a difference. So that's the new modern technology. Those machines are so expensive. And, and about the only people that I know that use those are financed by the big mills like Weyerhaeuser. And, and I don't know if GP does, but big companies that will uh, finance the logger in order to, or they have their own logging that use those methods. It's tethered method. Uh, method. And that's by hanging on to that filler buncher and doing it that way. So that's the newest technology. Other than that, we're we're up to the state of the art. Well, I I I could uh, glean much more information from you, I'm sure, but we're about out of time. Yeah. Well, George, let me let me say real quick. We need tours. Uh, we need to educate the people. I think I w- I'll be on one. I'll go. I'll go on. Absolutely. One. We we had a chamber of commerce 
uh, after yeah. hours over across the bay and had all these town people come up and watch us log. We had everything right there where they could see choker setters, sky car, processor, log loader, load trucks. Trucks went out beside us, and these people were going, I had no idea. I had no idea. So this one lady comes up, and this was really mixed makes everything worthwhile. I said, I was one of those tree huggers. Now I understand, and I just love this. Go logging. Now, that's what we need to educate the people on because they need that product. Yeah. In order to get that product, you got to have somebody to protect the ground, the water, the soil, and that's what we do. Well, and, you know, just quickly, you can love trees and love logging at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, because you, you told me in one other interview that – you guys are, are 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 very much into conservation. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're out of work. Absolutely. Right. Well, the, the other thing is, if we don't about clear cutting, that's not a dirty word. If we don't have clear cutting, we don't have wildlife. Deer, especially, only live because of clear cutting. They browse in the clear cuts. They don't browse underneath canopies. Elk don't go into canopies. Elk actually are on our pastures. But they, they, they need clear cuts to survive. And we had the fish and game come down and say, why are, are our black-tailed deer becoming extinct? Predators, no. Uh, doe hunters, no. It's because we don't have any clear cuts. The okay. Forest Service does not clear cut. The Forest Service, 95% of our logging used to be 98% from Forest Service timber sales where they were reasonable and understand. Now it's gone to the other side to where there's no timber sales being let out. Bobby so, King, thank you so much. You're welcome. For stopping by. Appreciate it. We'll see you on a tour. All right. Coming up next on Our Town, Donnell Spencer talking about the Kiwanis Free Family Movie Night for the holidays. Joining me in the studio now is Vicki Sieber-Benson and Desiree Clifton, and they are representing Empty Bowls. It's coming up this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Florence Event Center, correct? Yes. Correct. So tell me, this is, I think I heard Wayne Sharp say something, this is the 24th year this has been done? Yes, it is. Do either of you know how it all got started? My understanding of how it got started, it we actually started, the whole concept of Empty Bowls started in Eugene, where somebody decided that selling handmade empty ceramic bowls was the perfect metaphor for dealing with hunger. And it's a fundraiser that has kind of spread across the country. Now, with 24 years here, this, over the years, a lot of different artists have participated in this. Oh, hundreds. Hundreds. And so is it a a new... A new group every year, or do we have some crossover from year to year? We have lots of crossover. Um, Some people, well... I've been contributing for the last, I think, 19 years, um, and other artists are about that long, and some are brand new. And we have many, many kids who grew up in this area that contributed through their art classes in the high school, mm-hmm. because the Sayusla High School contributes bowls every single year, and many, many kids have really good memories of contributing. Well, I guess uh, with 24 years under, uh, under the rug there, uh, some of these... Uh, adult artists were probably kids at the time when this Correct. all started. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So what, I guess the designs are left up to the individual then, right? Uh, we're just depending on what their creativity wants to do as far as what kind of bowls they're going to make? We we do help them with the expenses. We contribute the clay and the glazes. And that's about it. Yeah, they're, some, they're on their some own people after, do, after that. It's... Some people do small bowls. Some people do large. Um, most of them are cereal size bowls. 
as my children would say. I don't know. I, I had a lot of cereal and say bold. When I, when I, said, I don't know. Maybe. I was going to say it depended on whether your your kid is a oh, teenage that's boy or true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, my parents used to hate having to buy milk. Uh, you know, when I was at home for the summer, that was just a tough thing because we'd go through that quite a bit. So, who are some of the artists that are participating? Okay. Well, we have there's two aspects to the to the sale. We have both the bowls, and then we also have a silent auction. And so okay. we have uh, various artists in town that are contributing to each of them. Um, people who artists who are contributing to the bowls range from um, sort of advanced beginners at the high school, um, more advanced beginners to almost experts at the college. Um, that class always contributes a lot of stuff, and I hear they told me to bring my moving van to pick it up the, oh my next goodness. week, Yay. so we'll see how much they have. Um, we also have um, professionals such as Greg Kennedy and Alyssa Clark, um, and every level in between. Um, Patty Land, who you'll, you can recognize a lot of these names from... Um, Galleries around town mm-hmm. and sales. I've seen some um, of Alyssa Clark's work, so I'm yeah. yeah. And then um, for those of you who have bought bowls in the past that are marked "ick," those will also be back. That's me. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, we also have now the silent auction is going to be more than bowls. The silent auction is various kinds of art. Okay. Um, but in addition to the ceramic bowls, we have um, for the last three or four years the Oregon Coast Woodturners Association, um, which is based in Newport, has donated oh, probably 50, 60, 70 bowls. We've had. Oh, I have them at my office now. It's going to be very hard to turn them over. Yes, they're beautiful. I guess they use all all different kinds of wood. All different types Mm -hmm. of wood. um, And I know some there's some processes where you can glue different woods together in a block and then craft your bowl from. And we have some. Oh, cool! That are different colors. Oh my goodness! They're usually they go very quickly. Ah. Probably for a nice premium price, too. (laughs) (laughs) So for the silent auction, um, we have a variety of different mediums. We have um, Stephanie Ames, who does photography in town. Uh, Patty Anderson, watercolor. Uh, Greg Kennedy, who is a professional ceramicist, who will be doing some stuff as well. Um, People will recognize Michael Schwartz, pit-fired ceramics. Um, New this year is... um, Wood carving from Heffy's Gallery, which is a new business in town, uh, a man who does these amazing carvings from um, Burlwood. Right. I've seen this with the, like sea lions with the whiskers and everything. It's mm-hmm. a very it's, intricate artwork. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very detailed. So, so he'll be joining us this year. And also um, over the past couple of years, um, Rhonda Butler, who has been on the board and uh, on the fundraising committees um, and donates a tremendous amount to uh, empty bowls and all year does very unique woodworking that features the real character of the woods from the local area. Um, and this year she has actually started doing something besides just um, bowls and, and uh, sushi boards that she's famous for. She started making jewelry um, where she takes lichens and other natural materials and there it's encased in uh, a resin material and it's it's amazingly beautiful. Mm. So we'll be featuring some of her artwork as well. That's pretty cool. Now, the the benefactor for Empty Bowls is Florence Food Share, correct? Correct. Now, of course, they just came off a, a monumental week of uh, food share giving at the pounding. I mean, it was over 22,000 pounds. Oh, mm-hmm. So this is an additional thing to help because I, my understanding is they serve between six and 700 uh, different families annually. Well, is we have monthly? right now our, our distribution list that I was just given, 831 households. Wow. 103 households of the, that were served are homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is amazing. 22.7% of our, our clients are under the age of 18. 34.2% are age 55 and older, and that went up in September. Um, and it's just, 
it's absolutely amazing the need in this area. So many families are working more than one job. They have children at home to feed, and this keeps families up and running. It, it's surprising um, how much it does help them. Yeah, food's expensive. I mean, it is. It is, and when you have you know more than a, one kid at home, or even if you have one kid at home who's you know growing fast, that food Correct. can be eaten up quickly. Yeah, and right. it, I was just saying, really, I understand that yeah. there are changes coming to the SNAP or food stamp program as well that are going to make it much harder for people to, and, to get you know, food stamps that way. Yeah, we're just going to have to be the stopgap there. And anything we can do to help keep the doors open. Um, you know, we get a lot of food during the holidays and a lot of help during the holidays. But then in the springtime, the the everything yeah. kind of drops off. So we need to have money in the bank so that when that time comes we can keep those shelves full of food when people come in. Well, and you know, the, the thing is, it's this time of year and, and right before summer, you hear a lot about efforts to raise food and raise money. Um, maybe, in, you know, in January, February, we start, you know, doing that again and maybe have a, a late winter drive that pushes, you know, toward mm -hmm. this because it's true. I mean, the food only lasts so long before, you know, it has to be off the shelf. So. Well, in Correct. February, we'll have the second big fundraiser um, of the year well, I guess it's the first fundraiser of 2020, which is the Crab Crack. Right, right. Um, so that, mm -hmm. that's the one and that tickets are out. Tickets are for sale now, I understand. Correct, right? yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. And they sell out fast. Yeah. So how, how does the empty bowls work when people go there? Are, are they all out, and is it an auction price, or there's some that are specifically priced for a certain amount, or how does it work? We have them out on tables. Uh, we try to keep the tables full. Um, we feed the tables from our boxes. Uh, admission is free. It's family-friendly. Quite often I see parents bringing their children in to buy gifts for their friends or whatever because it's a beautiful handmade bowl. It's affordable, and um, it's really special for those kids to come in and be able to buy something for their friends or a family member, put little goodies in it. They're $10 each. Traditionally, the larger bowls will go for a little bit more, smaller bowls less. Um, and with each bowl, we get a soup coupon that is good for one cup of the soup of the day at that participating restaurant for the month of December. And um, they're just, it's really fun to watch people come in and choose their bowls. Some people really get excited because they're very, very beautiful. It's now, if someone gets a coupon, they, they don't have to, do they have to bring their bowl that they purchased in or do they no, just get it? No, okay. no, they just bring the coupon and then they get their cup of soup with their meal or just a cup of soup. That's pretty cool, yeah. Now what about the, the silent auction part? Are there bowls in the silent auction or is it like more intricate, more? They're know? not specifically bowls. There okay. may be some, some um, large ceramic bowls or something, but, but it's all different kinds of art. There's paintings, there's um, fused glass. Um, locally, a lot of people... Um, no, Sue Gilday, not just as an insurance agent, but as a, f a fused glass artist, and she does beautiful stuff. She's going to do some pieces for us this year. Um, so there's, um, there'll be a metal print of the poster, if any people have seen the poster right there, um, that will be in the silent auction. We have an oil painting. Um, Joshua Green will be donating something, which usually ends up being a Marilyn Monroe print from his father's collection. collection. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so the silent auction has lots of different things, and we have... Um, for the silent auction, it ends on Sunday afternoon, about an hour or so before the event ends. But the things will be priced so that you can bid on it. Or if you really, really want something, we have a buy it now price. And oh. somebody can just say, just like eBay. 
Yeah. <laughs> they can say, I don't want to wait. I want this. Have you, in the 24 years, has, have you ever run out of bowls before? Yeah. Actually, I got involved, <clears throat> excuse me, because I had recently moved here and was a potter, and a friend of mine's mother was working the event, and my friend came over for dinner on the first night of the event and said, my mom just called me and they're out of bowls. Do you have anything upstairs in your studio? And I said, oh, okay. So I went up and gathered what I have, and we sent them down for the next day. And from there on out, I was hooked. So they <laughs> they have uh, they have run out before. We haven't in a few years. We've, I mean, in those days, they had between two and 400 bowls. Um, for the last few years, we've had about 1,000. Wow. Yeah. That's and a lot of bowls. We expect to have yeah, at least 1,000 a week. And this is a three-day event. So it's this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I believe I got the times right here. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday evening. Mm-hmm. Then on Saturday, it's from 10 to 5. And Sunday, it's from noon until 3. Correct. And there are other things going on. In excuse me, in the event center at the same time, there's Fra has a Christmas gift sale going on, and Holly Jolly Follies um, will also be happening part of those times. So, okay. well, thank you all for being here. Um, is there anything you wanted to share that we didn't uh, add in there yet? We're mm-hmm. going to have over over a thousand bowls. It's this weekend. We know the times. It's a free event. You just have to pay for the bowls. Correct. Correct. Well, thank you both for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Desiree Clifton and Vicki Siever Benson. Coming up next, we'll talk with Public Works Director Mike Miller on this edition of Our Town. Every now and then, I like to uh, bring in Mike Miller to get updates on what's going on. Aaron does a good job of updating, so does Megan. Mike's in a particular um, area of the city where we, we get a whole lot more of the details from. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good, good. So we're into December now. Uh, of course, you guys are on a... What's your budgetary year? You're, you're... So we're basically December is half, half the year. Okay. Um, we are on a biennium budget, so it's every two years. But typically it's July through June. Right. So you're, you're, you're one-fourth the way through this biennium budget then, I would say, right? Yes. It's a two-year. So. Yeah. so a quarter way into it, um, where are we standing? Like, how's Miller Park doing? So Miller Park's um, doing well. You know, it, it's that project being a grant-funded pro- project is um, it's always tricky. Yeah. And, and, and it's just because it's a little bit complicated. There's some parts of it that we really need this specialties, so specialty trade type folks. Um, and and we've, we went out for a bid on the project to do the whole thing, and it came in way over budget. Um, yeah, there was no way that we could go and justify doing a half million dollar restroom out at Miller Park. So, um, so we took it as our own project using our own staff, but then we have to have some specialty trades come in, like the um, putting up the masonry con- concrete wall. So those block walls, um, we went out and we solicited bids on it. Um, it's always interesting because there are some local contractors and they weren't really interested. We had to reach out to other areas in the state to get them here. Um, and the low bid for that project, contractor backed out. So we had to go and talk to the second um, place contractor and, and they agreed to do, um, to do the project at basically the same, same cost um, that they proposed. And but it was a timing issue trying to get because during the summer everybody's extremely busy, right. so it pushed our project back a little bit. But the block walls are done, um, beams are in place, my crews are putting on the roofing system. Um, it's coming along really well. Actually, probably seeing you know a metal roof on it here by mid December, I'm thinking, and then then I'll be just finishing it out, um, putting the actual restroom 
appliances in or, or fixtures in and the doors and everything. So it's it'll be it'll be coming along. It'll be hopefully open in spring for sure. So we won't be doing like any solar panels on the roofs or anything. No, no, no. Just, that was yeah, just the just public works building there. Yes, for now, for yes. now anyway. For, for now, yeah, we we'll, we'll leave that open. Um, course we know that the the airport finished their their lighting system now the pappy lights are in yes um it's pretty cool i got to i got to land a couple of times there and, and kind of take a look at it that's pretty neat um is the paving portion of it is that still something that might go out to bid in the next couple of years or yes so the um so that project um <clears throat> so it was scheduled and programmed to do a slurry seal of the runway and parallel taxiway um, and when we got the bids, it was, you know, too much money, um, to do the project because it is being paid for by the FAA. So it's a federal grant, um, that's paying for the project and we had to scale it back. So we focused just on the lighting pro um, project. So the lighting system is done, as you mentioned. Um, and then we're rolling the pavement maintenance portion, the slurry seal runway taxiway. And we're going to combine that with a slurry seal of the apron, the landing or the parking area at the airport, along with um, some rehab of the connector taxi lanes. Uh, so between the hangars, there's a couple of them that are pretty, you know, that they need to be rehabbed. And and then a slurry seal over the other um, better condition ones. So that'll be rolled over into the next three years. Um, so we're on a, you know, we do have a five-year budget or a five-year um capital improvement program for the airport. And so that's been moved into, I believe, year three of that program. Now, I don't know how many people know this, but um, you guys have a courtesy car there. We do. That is available for pilots that come in. Um, is that is that fully electric or is it, a, is it a hybrid? It's a hybrid electric. It's a plug-in hybrid electric. So it, it does get excellent um, mileage, if you, if you will, for around town. And then it does have the gasoline engine. So if pilots want to go up to sea line caves or actually you can probably get pretty far with electric, it's very efficient. Um, I've driven it around town and it's, it's an awesome little vehicle that we were able to get um, for the airport. Took care of the older donated courtesy cars that we had. Um, so we have a very, very nice, and it's, you know, it's labeled really nicely. Um, it shows our sustainability efforts, you know, our commitment to sustainability with that vehicle, um, for the, for the city and the community. Um, and it's, it's something very nice for, for those transient pilots that are coming into town. You know, they're going to come into town. They're going to spend, you know, a couple hundred dollars coming to town, going, you know, going downtown for, um, for dinner or lunch. And, you know, here for the day, and then they're flying back to another airport or, you know, back to their home base. Is there, what's the, what's the best time of year? Obviously, when we have the things like fog and stuff roll in on a regular basis, what, when do we see the most um, takeoffs and landings at the airport? Is there a certain time of year that's so spring? Yeah, well, I, I would say typically it's, it's summer, you know, and that, and that can be tricky because of the winds. So our airport is is a technical. It's technically challenging with the crosswinds uh, coming in, but you know summer is always great. And actually, our second summer, fall, is awesome. Awesome flying weather, and we actually see a lot of flights um, in that period, September through November, at the airport. As long as we have you know nice weather, and we usually do it on the coast. Wait ten minutes if you don't like the weather, right. and, and we um, have you know blue skies. So it's always it's always good to fly in. And I guess there's no room for a, a, an east-west runway. 
No, there no isn't. That's, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Crosswind, little crosswind runway. Okay. Anyway, uh, what else you got going on? I mean, I, I know that. Uh, uh, let's see. This Saturday is the day that uh, December seventh is the day we're going to turn the lights on. Yes. So have you, has your crew been getting everything set up? And they have been. They have been. So um, this year, having the holiday lighting ceremony the weekend after Thanksgiving, so not the weekend of Thanksgiving, but the seventh, is providing us ample opportunity to get everything lit up because it, it does take a lot of effort um, my staff have been working um you know well before thanksgiving so not only week of week of thanksgiving but the weekend prior to thanksgiving because we it's not just about old town it's our public buildings so whether it's public works the event center the justice center and city hall city hall is going to be new so we're really excited about um that facility because it's just been remodeled right you get a new a new chance to... a new new chance it's a it's a new canvas um to light up and so there's gonna be some surprises for up up there that we're really excited about and then old town um, we keep building upon that um there'll be more lights i remember um, last year was awesome so i imagine that this it's year gonna be... be it's gonna be really nice yes we've we've invested a little bit of money into the lights very good now i i just it's, it's something just dawned on me is that the last two years when I was down there waiting for the lights to be lit, I looked around at Mayor Henry and I said, you know, I could, I could bring you a sound system for this. And I, and I was saying, if you guys don't have one, I'll be happy to bring ours down there because I know he wanted one the last couple of years instead of the bullhorn. So let me know if, if you guys want it. I'll be happy to bring it down. All right. I will do that. Cool. So holiday lights, uh, anything else? Oh, the uh, speed limit so, on 101. So speed limit on 101. So um, about a year ago, there was a number of requests or concerns about speed on Highway 101, most of it outside the city limits, um, up towards Friendly Acres Road. And so um, state reached out to us, um, to Florence Public Works, and asked, what, you know, what do you guys see? Do you, are you seeing the same thing? And so it was a joint effort between the city and the state, putting in a speed order investigation or um, basically a study. And, and it's taken about a year for those results to come in. Um, so we looked at everything from 31st north. So 31st is that transition from the 35 mile an hour zone on Highway 101 to the 40. And then it remains 40 up to about oh, almost two tenths of a mile past or north of Munster Lake Road. And then it transitions to the 55 mile an hour zone. And it remains that way um, as you go to the north. So the state came in, they did their analysis, they looked at, um, of course, traffic, you know, crash history, um, the speeds that are out there. And what they found is that the pace speeds, um, 85th percentile was at 55 for that area that was already at the 55 mile an hour zone. For the 40 mile an hour zone, it was in that 40 to 44 um, mile an hours. Um, so, so it came back that there will be no changes to the speed. We were hoping that, that there might be a chance to reduce the speed um, north of 31st up to probably Munson Lake Road because it's more, it's more you know, urban um, than, than not. And with the amount of growth that we've seen over the years, we were hoping that that could get reduced, and um, that wasn't the case. So I would have I liked to have seen them wait on the 55 until after Hasita Beach Road, because that, that's a major turn. There are so many people in and out of there, yeah. you know, on a regular basis. But 
you know, I guess they, they do what, you know, the research and they do what's best for, you know, the, the majority of traffic that goes over there. Yeah. And, and the speeds are, you know, they're controlled by the state. So um, there's there's an opportunity to, you know, challenge or, or request a further review. Um, but the numbers are pretty solid yeah. um, from what, what I've seen in the report. And I know so we talked, uh, what, about a month ago when you were sitting in for Aaron, we talked about the reduction in speed going southbound. And I mentioned something about signs being there. It was like the very next day, signs popped up, oversized 40-mile-per-hour sign, you know, a reduction sign, uh, re- sp- speed being reduced coming down. And I was like, boy, Mike's really fast. He, really got, <laughs> he, got, he got right on that. But I guess it was probably already in the works at that point. Or um, So th- so that sign was actually misplaced by the contractor that was working out there. Ah. And so we we um, recovered the sign and got it in right away. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that, thank you for that because that was amazing how quickly that happened there. <laughs> so anything else going on? I mean, you guys you guys <clears throat> good for the new year? We are. We are. We have, you know, there's a couple other little projects um, underway. So we have a Highway 126 utility extension project that's currently under construction. That's um, basically from the Yamaha shop east um to it will be it'll stop short of xylo um it won't go out to xylo it's basically um part of the conditions of annexation of the saxon property and if you don't know who saxon or the saxon property is it's that building that's on the estuary just as you on the south side on the south side yes so so that project is under construction it'll be wrapped up um by christmas so there'll be water and sewer out there to service some properties. And how many properties is that going to affect? I mean, is is it basically pretty much that one, or is it is also going to is it also going to affect north side of the street? North side. So that okay. large uh, vacant parcel of property will also have service, and then we're set up for the future. So there, there's been there's been some interest, but not a lot of interest of actually extending water and sewer down actually to Zylo because um, there's already homes there. They're on septic. Um, the on you know wells um, out there also they're not in the city but there's some some interest because over time the wells haven't produced or they're not of the quality of water um, and people are also interested in, in sewer but there's not that mass of folks that really want it to help pay for it because mm-hmm. it's something that it's costly it's, it's costly yeah. and the city just can't do it ourselves um, just like the extension of sewer on Highway 101 north of Munsell Lake Road that project. Is actually on the east side is a reimbursement district where, you know, it's a four hundred and thirty-two thousand dollar project, and the city because it's oversized for future expansion, so the city contributed one hundred ninety-four thousand, um, and the property owners are going to have to repay about two hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars towards that project. Now I don't know if if you discussed any of this or talked with planning commission, um, but a lot of the west side properties there north of Munsell. Uh, are, are there some talk about maybe turning that into residential housing or multi um, multi residential units? Because I because I, I wondered about you know I mean what's the sense in putting that all in there unless someone's got some plans for that? Right. Is there anything public that could be talked about? Or? Well, so on the west side, we did extend the sewer up to the city limits on the west side. Also, um, it's not a reimbursement district because we had 100 percent of the property owners commit um, to that project, but um, part of that sewer line the the part of the nexus for that sewer line going up there is the sand ranch property so the sand ranch which is now sand pines ranch is a uh, a large development that will be happening um at the old sand ranch and and back to the west 
a large, you know, it, it's almost 40 acres of property back wow, there, I didn't there that, that, much, that yeah. will um, be starting development hopefully sooner than later. Um, they've been talking about it for a long time, but I believe um, they're they'll be moving forward with with their application and, and getting their land use approvals and and moving forward with you know construction here probably in the next six to eight months. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Good. Good. Well, you know, we we can always use more residential housing. That's we for sure. absolutely could. Yes. Well, Mike, thank you so much for stopping in today. Appreciate it, and it's always good to get an update and see what's going on. Uh, you guys keep yourselves busy. That's for sure. We do. We're the you know we are the force that keeps the city in motion. Mm-hmm. It's like we what we like to say. Also, uh, again, the lighting is this Saturday. What? That's it's three thirty, right? Is that what time it starts? So so activities start um, between three and three thirty. Um, I believe Santa is coming. Check the chamber website for the exact times, but I want to say by three thirty, yeah. Santa Claus will be in right. town. Um, tree lighting actually happens at five thirty, but we'll have hay rides um, for for people. We'll be making a loop um, basically from the port parking lot down to the former Lotus parking lot on the um, west end of town, making that loop, providing um, hay rides and, and that experience for. For the community. And, and, knock, and on wood, knock on wood, good weather for that, too. Oh, it's always going to be great weather. There you go. Mike, thanks so much. You bet. Thank you. Mike Miller, everybody, with the City Public Works. Now, due to time constraints, we're going to talk the history of logging, but I'm only going to be able to do half the interview today. So be listening, and you can continue listening tomorrow to the second half of it on KCFM, or wait till Friday and get it online. So we'll talk logging, the history of, with Bobby King from R&R King Logging, next on the December edition of our tip. Coming up on December 16th, the Florence Kiwanis Club is going to have an event for kids of all ages, and it is a very merry family movie night. Donnell Spencer is here with me now to talk about it. She is a fellow Kiwanian. So what, how did this idea come about? Well, during the holiday season, especially December, there's a lot of financial stress, and kids feel it, families feel it. And so it was really important for Kiwanis to to kind of give back and, and relieve that stress and, and bring a little bit of magic to our, our, the children. There's so much worries in this world right now that an evening at the movies is would be so perfect and magical, I think. Kind of a break from the, the everyday and kind of get away from what the world's doing to you on the outside. Right? Exactly, exactly. And we're really hoping to make this an annual event. It's called the Kiwanis Very Merry Family Movie Night. Um, we are doing the Polar Express. Which is a great movie. It's sort of... It's sort of a cartoonish live action thing at the same yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's always a family tradition in our family to watch it Thanksgiving weekend. So, um, And something about the movie really brings the spirit of Christmas back to the families and children. So, was, And we're really excited. We're actually doing two showings for free. And I repeat that, for free. There's no obligations to have to pay for anything. The showings are at 4 and 7 at the City Light Cinemas. Um, we're very excited about it. Um, Dutch Brothers is actually bringing in the not-so-hot chocolate for the children, completely free again. We're going to have cookies for the kids. And hopefully a special appearance by Mr. C, Mr. Santa Claus himself. Ooh, really? So, yeah, huh. we put in a request, and it sounds like he can make an appearance. So we're really excited. Well, that'll be good. I know he's kind of busy this time of year, but, you know. <laughs> now, the thing is, though, you can't just – it's best not to just walk in at the last minute, correct? Correct, correct. We do – you do need tickets. So there's two ways to get tickets. You can actually go right to the theater and get tickets now. Or you can actually go on their website at www.citylightcinemas.com, and you can get tickets right there. When you go to pay for them, you'll see a zero, zero dollars for the price. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing. We are asking that if you do get tickets to make an appearance, come see the movies. But if something happens last minute, if you can actually bring those tickets to the theater, that way if some we do have some walk-ins, it is limited seating. So we're right. trying to get as many kids and families in there as possible. 
Now, obviously, the Florence Kiwanis, you know, does a lot of work in the community and, and you know, the main thing they do when they're raising funds is to help kids out. Yes. Um, so this is one of those events where it's just giving back. We're not looking for any money from anybody. Correct. Right? We're just going to have a little fun time. Now, I was reading the flyer, and I got to ask you, it says free cookies and kids get free hot chocolate. So are the free cookies for everybody or just sure. the kids? I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be plenty for the adults also. We do, you know, it does say free hot, hot, hot chocolate for kids. But uh, if, you know, if the other parent wants a hot chocolate, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, we're just that, trying to we're just trying to supply you know for all the as many kids as possible. But the kids, kids first, right? Exactly. That's right. The exactly. kids first. And if there's any left over, the adults can have some. Yeah, too. exactly. So. so why did you pick? Uh, I know you said the you watched the Polar Express at your home at Thanksgiving. Why why the Polar Express uh, versus a, a dozen other movies that are out there? Is it just because of the you feel the the holiday spirit that it brings to it? Something about the ending, how this young man's questioning his belief in Santa Claus, and bringing the faith and and the belief back. A lot of kids are seeing just some images on TV and the radio that you kind of lose faith sometimes, and I think it's really important to have that. Well, and it's a, and it's a nice um, a nice movie compared to like I mean I know a lot of people like the movie Elf, yep. But this is this is even more this is I think this is more family appropriate than Elf is because this is it's a more respectful way of looking at the holiday. Whereas sometimes you get a movie that's kind of disrespectful looking at it, you know, and, and treating people in a negative way. But this is really positive. I don't know. I, I like Elf, too. We might be playing oh. that next year. You never well, know. You <laughs> well, and it's not, no, it's not a bad movie. I'm just saying as, as far as, you know, as far as the, the image you get when you think of the Polar Express. Exactly. Just bringing, yeah. bringing back the magic. All right. Now, again, what, what is the date for it? December 16th, um, two showings at 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. You have to have tickets. Please stop by the, the, the cinemas, City Light Cinemas, 1930 Highway 101. Go on their website. Get the tickets there. Again, if you get tickets and you end up not being able to go, please just bring them back to the theater and drop them off. And so maybe some walk-ins can get in there and see the movie, too. And again, totally free. Totally free. All right. Donnell Spencer, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up this Saturday is the Festival Tree Lighting. We'll be talking with Bettina Hannigan from the Florence Area Chamber of Commerce next. Now, normally when we're in the first week of December, we've already gone through uh, meeting Santa Claus, turning on the lights at the Christmas tree. But this year, it's a little bit different. Bettina Hannigan is here with the Florence Area Chamber of Commerce. And uh, we're going to do that when? This weekend, right? December 7th, Saturday, we're going to have the holiday festival in Old Town. And we'll have the hay rides. Scary Folio is coming with his antique John Deere tractor again to pull the, the hay the hay trailer, the hay the hay rides. The hay trailer. The hay trailer. Yeah. Hay trailer. Hay trailer. Yeah. Hay trailer. Okay, bring on the hay, the hay trailer. So that's always super fun. And the um, the Mr. Mayor, Joe Henry, will be lighting the Christmas tree at 530 on Saturday the 7th. And um, Santa Claus is coming on a fire truck at 330 so the kids can come and meet Santa. Any particular reason why it was moved back a week? Is it, is it so you can give more attention to, to the Small Business Saturday? or You know, it, it's been a request that the city has had, and it's just it's very difficult for the chamber, which is a volunteer organization, and the city, which has their very dear employees, to try to put all that together on Thanksgiving weekend. You know, a lot of people have family in town, and people are out of town. And it just puts a lot of pressure on all of the workers and the people that have to bring it to pass. And so we said, we met with some of the old town people and, and we said, you know, what can we do? How can we make this work? And Glenna Martin was there along with Kelly Weiss, myself, and Mike Miller and the gang. And we said, let's do something different. Let's, let's, let's kind of expand this. So we decided to do... November 30th, which is a cocoa cook, uh, Cookies, Cocoa, and Cider Trail, which we did. And then we started the uh, Sea Lion on a Shelf 
And that runs from November 30th to December 20th. And that's going to have people shopping all over town. I think we've got 35 Sammies wow. hidden around town. So just tell a little bit about how that works. People go have a card. They have a they have a passport. They passport. can and it, there's it's free. You can pick it up at the chamber uh, or at Bow Arts or at the Sayusla News, and it's free. And then you just go look for for Sammy, and when you find her, you just say, "Hey, I spy Sammy," and you get your passport checked off. And then when you're done, you turn it in, and we're going to be drawing for a hundred dollar uh, gift cards. Now, do you have to have your card totally filled in order no, to be? No, you just have to have a predominant amount. Correct. Yeah, okay. yeah I think probably a minimum of fifteen. Oh, yeah. yeah. So get a, get a few in there. Yeah. So at least you're putting the effort for Well, and you know, and it's fun to shop around town. And, and Sammy is so cute. It's being sponsored by Sea Lion Caves. And they've provided these plush little Sammies. And then Jenna Bartlett sewed the cute little uh, elf hats on them. And they're just adorable. And so they'll be hidden all over. And people are going to have a great time looking for Sammy. Now, once the promotion's over on the 20th, um, what happens with Sammy? Sammy gets returned back okay. to the chamber, and she'll go in storage. Okay, until for next year. Use for, again. Yeah, and we're thinking it's going to be a fun event, so we're we're, we're going to do it again next year. Well, especially if you get a hundred dollar gift card out of it. Oh yeah, yeah. and we're I think we're giving away a couple hundred dollar gift cards, and then some fifties and some twenty fives, right. and so those will be redeemable at the stores that hosted Sammy. And again, you know, uh, of course, um, uh, hold on a minute. Small Business Saturday was last Saturday, but. The encouragement is to to keep people shopping, small business. Keep it keep it local. Yeah, you know, it's winter time is a hard time for our businesses. We slow down in our tourism, and it's hard. So let's let's support our local communities so that we have places to shop. Otherwise, yeah. we won't. And what's pretty cool is there's a lot of stuff locally that that is you can't find anywhere else. So oh, absolutely, unique stuff. Beautiful gift shops and and all all over town. I mean, we just got beautiful. We've got, you know, handcrafted items and we've got beautiful jewelry and art galleries. And yeah, and I understand. I heard a rumor that we've got another art gallery going in um, up on um, Highway 101 next to Glow. Oh, yeah. Next to Cindy Wabi. How about that? That'd be I cool. know. Yeah. Right. So again, tell everybody, it's this Saturday. Saturday the 7th. What time does the, the everything start? 3.30 to 6.30. And 3.30 is when Santa... Santa gets... comes in on the fire truck. Okay. He'll come in first. He comes in and then that, that gets going and we'll have caroling and live music and shopping around town and, and just looking for Sammy. I'm sure there's going to be some Sammy, Sammy, Sammy shoppers. Sammy shoppers. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah. That's this Saturday, folks. Uh, come on out and enjoy it. Thanks to Bettina Hanning and Florence Area Chamber Thank you, and thanks to the city, because we Couldn't we could not do it without yeah. them. They, they, they do the big trees beautiful and all the lighting down there. The, the, the public works, Mike Miller and his crew, just really do a fabulous job. So shout out to them. Yeah, and we'll get to flip the switch on Saturday and get to see it all. Yes, it's going to be right. awesome. Thank you so much, Bettina. Thank you, George. That's our Our Town for this Wednesday. Remember to tune in tomorrow morning on KCFM to hear the other half of the Bobby King interview. In fact, actually, you'll hear the full interview again in its entirety. So uh, tune in tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. You're listening to Our Town on Coast Radio.